Well, now we're going to turn to this morning's scripture reading. Today we welcome another guest reader. All this month we've been celebrating the 25th anniversary of the creation of the Order of Deacons. We've been inviting deacons who are in service all around the state of Michigan to share a little bit with us about their ministry and to share with us God's word as we find it in the pages of scripture. Today we welcome the Reverend Sue Patu as she tells us a little bit about the work that God has called her to do and as she shares with us the story of the day of Pentecost as we find it in the book of Acts. Good morning. I'm Reverend Sue Patu. I serve at Cass Community Social Services and Cass Community United Methodist Church. I'm an ordained deacon and the chair of the Order of Deacons for the Michigan Annual Conference. At Cass, I normally, in a normal year, coordinate our volunteer efforts uh, with up to 7,500 volunteers a year. Um, in the last year with the pandemic, uh, I have switched to providing food boxes for those in our neighborhood, sometimes up to 100 uh, a week. So I've been very busy. Um, I'm here to read the text for the day. Today's text is from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and feared, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they had had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days... God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit. And in those days, they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and sighs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So the story I want to tell this morning begins in 1946. That's the year a man named Ray Davis was discharged from the U.S. Army. Now, Ray had served in the Army in the Second World War, but this isn't a war story. 
This is the story of what happened to Ray, the things that Ray did after he got out of the army in 1946. Now, Ray was a scientist. He was a physicist. And so after the war, when he got out of the army, he went to work in a laboratory. And when Ray started working at the laboratory, his boss basically looked at him and said, Ray, go find something interesting to work on. Go find a project to occupy yourself. And so Ray thought about it for a while and he doodled and scratched his head. And then finally, he came up with an idea. He placed an order. Ray placed an order for a great big barrel of dry cleaning fluid. And then he got a shovel and he started digging a hole. A few days later, Ray's boss came by and noticed him down at the bottom of this hole with a shovel next to a great big barrel of dry cleaning fluid. And he said, Ray, what on earth are you doing down there? And Ray said, well, I'm looking for neutrinos. And now this is the part of the story where we need to stop for a moment and talk about neutrinos. Scientists had been talking about neutrinos since the early 1930s. Back in the early 30s, physicists who were doing nuclear reactions noticed that something strange was happening. They noticed that their equations kept coming out just a little bit wrong. Every time they did a certain kind of nuclear reaction, a tiny bit of energy disappeared. It escaped and they couldn't account for it. They couldn't figure out where it was going. Finally, they came up with a theory. They theorized that some sort of a mysterious particle, some undiscovered subatomic particle, must be carrying away little bits and pieces of energy when they did their experiments. And they called that particle the neutrino. Now, there was a problem with this theory, though. If their calculations were correct, then neutrinos had to be really small, almost impossibly small, a million times smaller than the smallest subatomic particles they had ever discovered up to that point. As a matter of fact, if neutrinos were real, scientists figured that they were so small, they had to confess, they had to admit, they had to face the fact that they were never actually going to be able to see one. Neutrinos are so small that they would never be able to be detected, not even by the most sensitive of scientific equipment. And a lot of scientists didn't like that idea. Now, scientists don't like to take things on faith. Scientists don't like to believe in things that they can't see. Scientists like to believe what they can observe and what they can prove. And a lot of scientists didn't like the idea that there was some mysterious particle that they were never going to actually be able to prove exists or to see on their microscopes that was messing with their experiments. This whole idea of the neutrino divided the scientific community. And it also divided Ray from his boss. Because you see, Ray had this idea. Ray figured that if neutrinos are real, then they must be created by the kind of nuclear reaction that happens in the heart of the sun. And Ray figured if neutrinos are constantly being generated by nuclear reactions in the heart of the sun, then those neutrinos must be cascading through the earth. They must be bombarding the earth every second of every day. And he figured if those neutrinos are bombarding the earth every second of every day, there must be a way to see them. There must be a way to tell that they're passing through the earth, that they're moving through space. And then he came up with this idea. Ray figured that if neutrinos were real, then when a neutrino collided with a molecule of chlorine, it ought to cause a reaction. And the reaction of the chlorine and the neutrino ought to create a molecule of a gas called argon-37. Now, Ray figured if you could just get a great big tub of chlorine, like a barrel of dry cleaning fluid, 
And if you left it alone for a while and then every once in a while came back to check and see if there was any argon in the tub, then you would know that neutrinos were real and that they were colliding with the chlorine particles in that dry cleaning solution. Now the problem though is that here on the surface of the earth there's way too much radioactivity and background interference. If Ray was going to do this experiment right, he needed to bury that dry cleaning fluid down deep. He needed to put it so far down deep that only neutrinos would be able to get all the way down to the chlorine underground. And so that's what he told his boss. He said, oh, I'm digging a hole to bury this barrel of dry cleaning fluid so I can find out if neutrinos are real and if they're constantly passing through the earth. And Ray's boss looked at him and said, knock it off. He said, don't waste your time. Go do something that makes sense to people. Go do something that actually has a chance of succeeding. But it was too late. Ray was hooked. He was on a quest. And so he kept digging. And he buried that 55-gallon drum of dry cleaning fluid 30 feet underground. And then he left it for a week. He came back a week later and he dug it up again and he checked the barrel. But there were no, there were no argon molecules there in the tub. But Ray wasn't deterred. He said, all right, well, what I need is a bigger tub. And so he ordered an even bigger barrel of dry cleaning fluid and he buried it underground. And then when he went back to check it, he discovered that his results were contaminated. They were corrupted and unusable. And he said, so the problem now is that I need a deeper hole. And so he dug a deeper hole. And Ray went on like this, digging deeper and deeper holes and getting together bigger and bigger barrels of dry cleaning fluid year after year after year until he became a sort of a punchline. Ray became a joke in the scientific community. People would say, there goes Ray Davis with his dry cleaning fluid. There goes Ray Davis digging a hole again. Ray kept at it for more than 20 years. And finally, in 1968, Ray found himself at the bottom of the deepest hole yet. Ray went to South Dakota and he found an abandoned gold mine. And he went one mile underground all the way to the bottom of that mine. And somehow he got to the bottom of that mine, the biggest tub of dry cleaning fluid he'd ever worked with. This tub of dry cleaning fluid was 50 feet long and 20 feet wide. Imagine a, a horse pill the size of a mobile home filled with 100,000 gallons of dry cleaning fluid. Ray somehow carted all of that dry cleaning fluid all the way down to the bottom of the mine. And then he said, this is it. I can't go any deeper. I can't get a bigger barrel. If this doesn't work, he said, I'm finished. If this doesn't work, then I'm just going to have to admit that everybody was right and I've wasted my entire career. And so Ray left that great big barrel of dry cleaning fluid down at the bottom of that mine. And then a week later, he went back to check. And sure enough, when he looked in that great big tub of chlorine, he discovered that there were not one, but two molecules of argon gas. Oh, Ray got a little bit excited. He decided to repeat the experiment, so he left it down there again. And a week later, he went back and he discovered that sure enough, there were two more molecules of argon gas in that great big tub of dry cleaning fluid. Ray repeated the experiment over and over and over again, and he kept on getting exactly the same results. Week after week, he got about two molecules of argon in his dry cleaning fluid. It wasn't much, but it was enough. It was enough for Ray to say that at least two neutrinos collided with an atom of chlorine, passed through this great big tub at the bottom of the mine. 
It was enough for Ray to publish his results and say to the world, look, I have proved that neutrinos exist and that they are passing through the earth every second of every minute of every day. Now, Ray went from being a laughingstock to being one of the heroes of the scientific community. Ray won the Nobel Award for Physics for his work with neutrinos. And thanks to Ray Davis, we now know an awful lot about neutrinos, even though still to this day nobody has ever seen one. One of the things we know is that neutrinos are created in the heart of the sun. And we know that those neutrinos are constantly blowing through the earth every day like an invisible wind. Right now, right where you are, where you're sitting, 100 trillion neutrinos are passing through your body every second. 100 trillion. And the reason that you don't feel them, and the reason you don't need to be worried about them affecting you in any way, is that neutrinos are, as scientists suspected, almost impossibly small. How small are they? Neutrinos are so small that to a neutrino, your body is mostly made up of the empty space between the atoms. Neutrinos pass through your body as easily as a golf ball would go flying through the solar system. If you were to take all of the neutrinos that will ever pass through your body, 100 trillion neutrinos per second times an entire lifetime, you end up with about a trillion trillion neutrinos. If you take the trillion trillion neutrinos that will pass through your body through the course of your lifetime and then you add those to all of the neutrinos that have passed through the bodies of every person, every human being who has ever lived, take one trillion trillion neutrinos and multiply it by around a hundred billion people who have lived throughout all of human history, all of those neutrinos put together would weigh about five one thousandths of an ounce. That's about the same as a half-carat diamond. That's how small neutrinos are. And I love this story. I love the story of Ray Davis and his persistence. I love the story of, of this dogged scientist who didn't give up and discovered something that nobody else really was sure was there. I love this story because in this story we discover that every second of our lives there is an invisible wind blowing right through us. There's an invisible wind sweeping through creation. This story tells us that we are surrounded by things we cannot see. What looks like empty space is, in fact, not empty at all. If you can wrap your mind around that, if you can wrap your mind around the fact that we are, are constantly being swept through by this invisible wind, that we are surrounded by things we cannot see, then you can begin to wrap your head around what the day of Pentecost is all about. And the story of Pentecost is one of the strangest stories in all of the Bible. The story begins on Easter Sunday morning. On Easter Sunday, the women go to the tomb. They want to care for the body of Jesus. But when they arrive at the tomb, they discover that the tomb is empty. The body isn't there. And so in a panic, they begin to run back to tell the other disciples that something has happened. But as they are running back to tell the other disciples, suddenly Jesus appears to them. He comforts them. He wraps his arms around them. And then the women go back and they tell the men what's happened, everything that they experienced, everything that they saw. But of course, the men don't want to take their word for it. And so the men have to run back to the cemetery themselves and they poke their heads in the tomb and they see that it is truly empty. And they go back to Jerusalem. They go back to the upper room where they spent so much time gathered and talking to Jesus. And then suddenly, Jesus starts appearing to people. 
And Jesus starts popping up all over the place. He appears to the disciples who are gathered there in the upper room. He shows them the hole in his hands and in his side. And Jesus appears to disciples who are walking along the road on the way to a place called Emmaus. He appears to a group of disciples who are fishing on a beach in Galilee. For 40 days, Jesus keeps popping up, appearing, encountering, meeting his disciples, teaching his disciples for 40 days. And then after 40 days of appearing to his disciples, Jesus takes them to a place called the Mount of Olives. And there on the Mount of Olives, Jesus says to his disciples, now the time has come for me to go to my Father in heaven. And the disciples panic. And they say, Jesus, don't leave us. What are we going to do without you? Who will guide us? Who will comfort us? Who will give us strength? And Jesus says, do not be afraid. My Father in heaven is going to send you a comforter. My Father is going to send an encourager, an advocate to guide you and to make you strong. Go back to Jerusalem. Wait here in the city and see what my Father is about to do. And then Jesus ascends to heaven. And the disciples go back into Jerusalem and they wait in the upper room. Now we don't know very much about that period of waiting. We have to fill the gaps in the Bible story with our imagination. I've always imagined that that time of waiting was a fearful and anxious time. There were still enemies of Jesus on the lookout in the streets. There were still soldiers patrolling the city. And so I imagine that those disciples probably didn't leave the upper room very much. They were probably cooped up in there together for long stretches of time. And I imagine that there were tense moments. And I imagine that there were crabby moments. And I imagine that there were moments of doubt. There must have been some moment in that time of waiting when the disciples looked at each other and said, Was that real? When Jesus appeared to us here in this place, when he appeared to us there on the beach, was that real? Or did we imagine it? Have we all experienced a sort of a collective hallucination because of trauma and exhaustion? There must have been moments of doubt. There must have been anxious and fearful moments in that time of waiting. But still the disciples persevered. They didn't go back to Galilee. They didn't go back to their lives. They didn't go back to their fishing boats. They simply waited there in the upper room. They waited for one day. They waited two days. They waited three days, four, five Six, seven, eight, nine. They waited 10 days together there in the upper room. And then on the 10th day, the 50th day after the resurrection of Jesus, suddenly something happened. They heard a noise. They heard a sound like the rush of a violent wind. And then tongues of fire appeared above the disciples' heads and then the Holy Spirit pushed them out into the streets and they started sharing the good news of God's love with all of the people who were gathered in the city, all of the people in the streets, people from a dozen, people from two dozen different nations. They shared the story of God's love in Jesus with all of these people. That's a strange story. There are a lot of things I don't understand about this Pentecost story. I don't know what those tongues of fire looked like or why, why they appeared above the disciples' heads. I don't understand how all of those people from all of those different nations were able to hear these fishermen from Galilee speaking in their own native languages. There are a lot of things I don't understand about this story. But the things I do understand 
Make me love this story as much as I love any story in all of the pages of Scripture. What I do understand is this. On the day of Pentecost, the disciples encountered an invisible wind that was blowing and is blowing through all creation. On the day of Pentecost, the disciples discovered that we are surrounded by things, by powers that we cannot see. On the day of Pentecost, this invisible wind, the sacred wind of God's Holy Spirit, blew through their bodies, blew through their hearts, blew through their souls, and carried away their doubt, carried away their fear, carried away their hesitation, and filled them with faith, and filled them with the love of God. And the miracle of Pentecost is that the same wind that was blowing through those disciples all those years ago is blowing still today. The wind of the Holy Spirit is blowing through your body, through your heart, through your soul right now. The Holy Spirit is present right there where you are. The Holy Spirit is present here in this church building. The Holy Spirit is blowing through the streets of Flint and through all of the world that God loves. The wind of the Holy Spirit that the disciples experienced on the day of Pentecost is blowing through us still today. God has given us a comforter. God has given us an advocate, a companion to guide us and to make us strong. And if we can be patient, if we can persevere, if we can hold on to what little hope, what little faith we have, eventually one day, Pentecost will come to our hearts as well. And the Holy Spirit will fill us with the love of God. Would you pray with me? God, we give you thanks for people of perseverance, for scientists who discover things we cannot see, for disciples who wait for your time and for your movement and your plan and your spirit. God, we pray that you would make us persistent like Ray Davis. God, we pray that you would make us hopeful even in the face of doubt like the apostles on the day of Pentecost. God, we pray that the wind of your spirit would blow through our hearts, carry away our doubt, carry away our fear, and leave only your love for this world in its place. God, fill us with Pentecost love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.